Um, everybody has on your seat, you have something, a save the date handout, and this is for the women's retreat because Lauren is going to be our speaker for the women's retreat also. Whether you like it or not. Different topic, and um, and so it's great because we get a teaser of how of how awesome she is at bringing the word, and so we'll have even more of that at the women's retreat this year. Looking at a different topic, looking at the idea of work and works in light um, before, you know, after the fall and then after Christ and what how that changes for us how what once was toil is now a joyful delightful work that we can do and that we delight to do in the Lord um, but so let me just say Lauren is so amazing Lauren is one of my best friends in the whole wide world she really is like a sister to me we first met um, really in 2001 when I was still in college and she was living in Connecticut and um, and so I'd come home, and she knew my family, and my family knew her. She was a part of my dad's church. And um, we joked around, I remember one summer, like, wouldn't that be crazy if we both went to seminary? If I went to seminary? We didn't want to you go went to seminary. seminary. Uh, yeah, we didn't want we to. Because we were strong, both strong opinionated women, and we were like, I want to get married. Our is already low. Yeah. Go to seminary. <laughs> that we'll never get married. Yeah. <laughs> and then, <laughs> right. And then Lauren went in 2003, and I yeah. went in 2004, both mm-hmm. to Trinity. And we were the two women under the age of 40 who were MDiv students there. And 30. And, and, and under the age of 30, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, so we ended like... We just hung out all the time. All and the we time. Play Mario Kart yeah. and talk about shoes and clothes and theology and theology <laughs> and you know biblical study. Oh, what about this passage? What do you right. think about this? Right, while we're playing Mario Kart, we show yeah. you these shoes. Yes, exactly. And so we just Lauren. Um, I was in her wedding. She was basically like my matron of honor last January and my wedding planner. So it she's was the amazing. godparent to my oldest. So so we've had a long bond. But one of the things I've always appreciated about Lauren is her grasp of of scripture she just knows so I'll call her up with questions that I might have and um, she knows so much she studies so much she gets more done in one day than I get done in one week I'm always impressed I know right now especially but always I've always been like how did you do all that in the time amount of time you had um, and so that's where I wanted to bring her here to help share the wealth of what the Lord's shown her as she's studying about certain things and so especially today we're looking at um, us as women and what does scripture have to say about us in relationship with the Lord we often hear certainly all the things that are said about men in relationship with the Lord in our salvation um, we see in our scriptures you know it'll be translated men and uh, mankind but it means us as well we know that we know it means us but there are specific things that are said about women that are um, in relationship with the Lord and so we'll look at those this morning yeah Um, so all that to say here's Lauren yay Yay. thank you Lauren (laughs) No problem. Um, so uh, I'm going to just go quickly do the introduction since Deborah did um, a good job telling you why I'm here. Um, not existentially. <laughs> That's a bigger question. Um, <laughs> someone texted me yesterday, said, Lauren, do you know where you're going? And I was like, in life? No. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, to the place where you're meeting us. Okay, I can Google that. <laughs> Um, but we're going to be looking at three passages of scripture. Um, we're going to look at Genesis 2. Um, we're going to look at John 4, Woman at the Well. And then we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 11. And then we chose these passages because oftentimes these passages have been misinterpreted or interpreted wrongly. And um, they, it's been done, they've been used as a disservice towards women. Rather than being messages of freedom or empowerment, they've been reasons to be to hold women back or to subject women um, and oppress them. And so these are just three of a number of passages in scripture that are used negatively. And so what we're gonna what I'm gonna do, you can we <laughs> you can just jump in anytime. Um, can everybody hear Lauren with the weed whacker outside? Okay. Yeah, come. Uh, that's a little bit further away from my coffee, but I'll be okay. <laughs> it's almost 10 o'clock. Um, 10 o'clock is when I actually fully wake up. Um, so uh, so we're going to be looking at those three passages and um, hopefully providing, I'll be providing to the best of my ability a fresh way of looking at it, a way that get, brings freedom and enjoyment and excitement about being a woman. Um, and uh, a, a part 
apart from your relationship to man, man, not humanity, but apart from man, um, in relation with God. So with that said, I will um, go ahead and read, it's not like I have that memorized, I should keep this first page up. Um, so Genesis 2, 18 through 25, I'm going to go ahead and read it. I'll read all the passages that we're going to be looking at. I'm from the north. I read passages of scripture fast to get to the stuff that I want to talk about. So buckle up and hold on. Um, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man there was none there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. It's a familiar passage. We probably all know that one fairly well. So, who is woman? A question asked by men and women alike, and that is applicable to all generations. Everyone asks this question. It's a question I ask myself as a woman. A question all too often strictly defined by her function. And by that I mean her biological function of the ability and the potential to give birth. And often the answer seems to be not really an answer at all. The answer you run across most often, uh, apart from the function, is she is like him but not him. That's equivalent to already, not yet. Or, but yes, yes and no, or and then the but, like it's, it's, there's, there's no answer really there existing. She is completely similar to him, yet utterly different. She is equal, yet not interchangeable. She is of the same flesh and bone, yet a different person, completely. She is comfort, and she is challenge, and in all of this, she is his perfect help me. So you see those terms, like there's, it's, it's comfort and challenge, and the answer is in the collision of the two. So it's that sort of not an answer, but an answer. The answer is implied in the silence. Um, in his, in being his perfect helpmeet, there are two questions that need to be asked. Now, part of the reason why we chose these passages was that these are passages where we, as women, need to come to the text with our questions um, and allow the text to give us the, its answers. For too long, what has been given to us has been interpreted through a certain lens, specifically a masculine lens. We have been told historically what we are as women, who we are as women, what we like, how we should give birth, etc., etc., and it's been filtered through a specific lens. Now we ask the question, and now we have women scholars and women theologians and women biblical biblical uh, theologians who have come to the text and given us answers. And so this is why we ask, we need to ask questions. These are three passages, question, um, passages that we can ask questions of. And so we're starting with Genesis. So the questions that we ask this passage, um, what does it mean to be help me? That's specific terminology. Um, and what help did Adam need that she meets in the coolness of the garden? So the first question, what does it mean to be help me? Um, and the, that's the Hebrew word translated Azer is the Hebrew word translated as helpmeet. And this is the same word used of God in Exodus, in the Psalms, and later in the book of Genesis. In her creation, in her name, the helper, the themes of protecting, supporting, shielding, sustaining, delivering, comforting, giving hope, and blessing are embedded. So when we go to understand who woman is or what woman is, we go to the verse that has the first naming of woman. It is God who names us first. Adam comes along and 
states the obvious. He doesn't actually name us first. It's God calls us, we will be the azer, the helper. In that term is his own definition of his own divine activity. So in Exodus 18, um, I'm going to read a little portion of it. It's um, 2 through 4. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in, the land, in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eleazar, Eleazar, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. My God is help is what that name means. And it's God, helper, God, deliverer, God, sustainer. So that Azar, that Azar aspect of Eliezer is God saves, God delivers, God comforts, God shields. And it's not, um, it's not strictly uh, imagery that is um, delivering um Deborah just delivered a baby. It's it's not strictly related to our biological function as it is about our presence um, that we we deliver, we comfort, we we uh, provide, and it has warfare imagery. It's not unstrong language. It's very strong language. So noticing the delivering and the saving imagery in the verse that we just read from Exodus, the warfare imagery, um, this idea of help, therefore, is not passive but active. In fact, if we devalue the aspect of helper in the creation of woman, we are also devaluing the aspect helper in God. So if we do not speak strongly about the term azer as it applies to women, we will simultaneously reduce that saving, comforting, delivering aspect of God himself. So what, how it is used of God, where that word is actually more often used of God than it is of woman, that needs to be informing our definition of what it means to be a woman. So now we're using strong imagery. This is why when we get to Proverbs 31, we can talk about her as Xena princess warrior and not reduced and left behind kind of in the background woman. She is in the front, she is on the front lines, she is active, she's aggressive, she's got fortitude and strength, and all of those speak to this azer quality that was given to woman in the garden through that calling azer. Um, so thus we should not view woman as less than man. Helper does not in any way designate woman to an inferior level or class. She is not his assistant. Her position has always been alongside man as equal until fa the fall. Genesis 3 is bad news. It's not just a slightly tweaking in a negative direction of pre-existing news. It's, I'm going to wrench this relationship and put it in an order that it should not be in. And it will be painful. It's a curse. Not just slightly worse situation of what was happening before. And this is why we don't read Genesis 3 into Genesis 2 and read hierarchy into the creation myth. It was only then that her position was consigned to a subordinate position. However, the intended position of woman was alongside man, ruling God's earth together and acting as God's ambassadors together. To be men's azer is to do for man what he could not do for himself. And this brings me to the second question. What is the help that this azer is meeting for Adam. What did Adam need help with? The text tells us, a strict reading of the text doesn't give us much information aside from the fact that he's lonely. Now, with the fact that we know that he's lonely and needs help, we can rule out certain things. It doesn't say he wanted a brood of children. So that's ruled out. It doesn't say that he had no idea how to pluck the fruit from the trees and needed someone to provide food for him. So that's out. It wasn't that there was a mess on the floor and it needed to be cleaned up. They were living in a garden. There was no clothes to be washed or ironed. They were naked. So immediately, when we look at what does it mean to be a woman and what does it mean to be doing the thing for Adam that he could not do for himself, it has nothing to do with <coughs> our regular tasks that we may have today. And if we do that, if we read that into Genesis 2, 
we are participating in natural theology, and that's not what we want to do. We want to allow God to tell us what's going on. God encounters us. He brings the information. So we can rule out any of our daily tasks that we may be doing today or we have done historically. I also want to bring up, because there's a lot of emphasis on men, the, 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 the high libidinous aspect of men. And this, what the text tells us is not that he needed an outlet for that. It is not about sex, it is not about home care, it is not about marriage even. There is another deeper aspect that is undergirding why the woman was created. And at this point in the story, there's only one need, and it's loneliness. There is a deep-seated loneliness that is going on. And so as God brings the ad animals to Adam, and every time Adam names them, and the naming isn't this like authoritarian thing, what's happening is, is he's designating his relationship to these animals. And essentially what he's saying is, no, not the one. Not, not, not the birds, not the elephants, no, no, no. It's almost like a series of no. And I always laugh and think, I'm sure the dog got a special, you know, like, <laughs> you wait here. <laughs> this looks promising. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a series, it's a parade of no. And Adam, in this parade of no, winds up becoming more and more turned in on self. He's, it's almost like God heightens the loneliness aspect. So the best answer I can give to who is woman is that she is the first gift of grace. She would not only alleviate man's loneliness, drawing him up and out of himself toward another, but would also be the means by which God would consummate his relationship with him, with them as one. Without her, loneliness prevails and the bridegroom is left standing at the altar. God demonstrates, I believe that you can read the first three chapters of Genesis and understand the biblical story going forward. Because here in Genesis 2, you have intervention. You have God intervening on the behalf of man, male, man. But this is a type and a foreshadowing of the intervention that will come for humanity in Christ. God does for the man what he can't do for himself. He is turned in on himself and he is lonely and he cannot fabricate a helper. He can't even find one in the parade of animals and God causes him to go to a death-like sleep and God does for him as close to death as he is, he provides an intervention. He intervenes. And so in Genesis 2 you have woman being created as a pointing to the ultimate intervention that will come in Christ. She imputes to him that which is intrinsically hers and that which he lacks, glory. She is his glory because without her he has none. And this alleviation of man's loneliness and her bestowal of her glory to him has nothing to do with works, tasks, or doing, but everything to do with merely her presence. And that's the important thing when we look at this passage. She's not doing anything. As I said, we've, we've already removed all the normal tasks that can be assigned to womanhood. She's not doing any of that. She's just there. It's her presence and only her presence as similar yet other that eliminates once and for all loneliness. With her and in communion with her, he will never be lonely again. Thus, it is one of my contentions that the creation story is first and foremost a story about the creation of community and secondarily about the communal microcosm that is marriage. This way, when we look at the creation story as a discussion or a story about the establishment of community, we broaden the definition and we incorporate all women, single, widowed, married, divorced, young, old, everyone. Woman is there as the final piece of the establishment of community. 
The duality of humanity is not specifically directed towards reproduction, but is rather a result of the encounter of the two different humans. Humanity does not produce its own plurality, but rather encounters itself as already in a community of persons. And there I'm quoting from um, a German scholar, Eberhard Jungel. Um, the creation of woman is less about reproduction and more about the alleviation of something that the man himself could not alleviate. The good, that is humanity, is not isolated, male or female, but their duality, their co-humanity, their social reality. Humanity comes into existence as a social reality and in this corresponds to God the Creator. God's image requires both male and female and their subsequent community. In Genesis 2, we are seen by the man for sure. We are, I mean, he has an exclamation like, hallelujah, is essentially how I translate, interpret that passage. Um, but more importantly, we are seen by God and intimately seen. So the title of this coffee talk is Seen, Known, and Loved, and this is the seen part. And I love imagining that point of time not in the text and it's left out of the text but there's a point of time where it's just God and the woman man there's the creation of woman and then there's God waking up the man and then there's this unmentioned period of time where it's God and the woman and to me that represents all the other times that God will be alone with woman you have Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary, the mother of God. You have the women who do not run from the cross event, but stay and witness it and represent what it means to be true disciples. You have women going out to be the first pro proclaimers. You have the women going from the tomb telling the disciples that Jesus is risen. And it's encounters one-on-one. -on -one. And I think there was a significant encounter in the garden with man and with with God and woman prior to Adam waking up and I always want to know what was said because part of me thinks God was like hang in there it's going to get bad but <laughs> I'm coming for you <laughs> so but there's that neat silence and I think it's I think it uh, the silence is filled as we keep reading through scripture any questions on that portion before I move on and feel free to raise hands if you don't understand something, or if you want to add something, or if you want to ask a question and direct the conversation, I have no problem. It's it's past 10 o'clock now, or at least 10 o'clock, so now I am fully awake and able to springboard from anything. So um, I'm happy to go where you guys want to go, too. So the silence tells me to move on to John 4. I didn't let that silence hang too long. <laughs> I'll go ahead and read this. I'm doing chunks in this. Uh, the whole story is fairly long. I extracted parts that I thought were kind of the gist of where we wanted to go, Deborah and I. I say we. It's like Deborah and I are two, two, two people, but I just say we all the time. Um, so Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. This is verse 25 through 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. She responds, I have no husband. And he says, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and now the one you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. I think her response, sir, I perceive you are a prophet, is so gracious. I don't know if I'd have the same grace of response with someone airing my marital past or the lack thereof. Um, so I'm always kind of impressed by her that she had the, deco like, decorum the right word? I don't know. Um, anyway, she's just very kind in her response. So the word of God, so it, you have Jesus, the word, low, sitting, like, always keep in mind the, the story and the imagery in the story. You have God, low, leaning up against a well. It's noonday. So the word comes low. The word of God, our encounter with Christ himself, exposes the very darkness of our hearts and how very dark they are. The word exposes that there is no health in us. 
she says, I have no husband. Jesus says, you are right. You have had five. Jesus tells her she is right in what she has spoken, but he continues and exposes more of the situation. He exposes the fullness and reality of the situation. It's not the occasional slip up here and there. It's the fact that our hearts are sick, ill, and turned to stone. This isn't just, uh, I didn't read my Bible today, which, you know, you should read your Bible, but that's little. This is exposing the actual sickness that is in our condition that needs a remedy. Um, it's not something that's just overlooked. It needs to be addressed. And that's why the exposure, that's why Jesus doesn't just say like, that's right, you know, you don't have a husband. He's like, and he exposes the whole situation. In Deuteronomy 10.16, God says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. That's a command. Circumcise your heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, I usually say 36, but then I have to go back and say 30, colon, 6 which I've still just done, but to make you laugh. Um, in 30, verse 6, it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with, so that you may live. Those verses clash, right? It presents a conundrum. Which is it? We can't circumcise our own hearts. No matter how hard we try, we're too sick to heal ourselves. Part of the fulfillment of the promise is that God will circumcise our hearts. This circumcision entails exposure, but results in life. In order to be healed, to be rescued, the fullness of the situation must be revealed. The word exposes, your heart is stone, you are sick, you need help. And this realization, this seeing things in this way for the first time is not easy. It's painful. The centrifugality of the word made flesh radically pierces through the calcification of our hearts rendering them fleshy and vulnerable. But the word guides the hearer into acceptance by the word. So we're going to have a different outcome from Genesis 3 when the word exposes and they feel shame and condemnation. They realize they're naked and they hear God and they hide. Here, she has been exposed by God himself, by the word made flesh, she doesn't run. She doesn't hide. She's exposed, but yet she's accepted. Jesus does not give up on the Samaritan woman. Jesus has told her once who he was. In verse 10 of that chapter 4, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and we, he would give you living water. And when she doesn't get it, he says it plainly in verse 26, because she still doesn't pick up on it. I who speak to you am he. I am the Christ. I am what you are looking for and expecting. I am is here. The word has come low and is now sitting on the ground, leaning against a well, talking with a Samaritan woman. This is good and comforting news. John in the immediate chapter before declares, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word incarnate encounters us where we are and exposes, but a word of love and, accept, and, and of acceptance occurs as well. It's a radical, unceasing, never stopping, never giving up, pursuant love. The exposure carries with it no shame or disgrace or condemnation. The word is an including event not an excluding one and it's not blind ignorance to our sin the text is clear Jesus doesn't just look the other way he doesn't avoid the topic he doesn't even just sort of skirt around and as I said just sort of like hang out with the you don't have a husband but he goes further he goes deeper you have had five husbands in other words I see it and know and I love you and because the word is a rescuing word and John has already clued us into the rescue plan it's also, I love you so much that I will and am rescuing you from it, from the shame and condemnation. Think of who he's talking to. It's a woman going to the well at noon. This wasn't what women did. They did it in the early morning when it was cold. All the other women had already gotten their water. She's out there by herself for a reason. 
And so in the midst of a, of a symbolic, physical gesture of shame and condemnation, the word of God comes low and enters and speaks and eliminates the condemnation and shame through the event of acceptance, through that encounter. She is encountered and accepted. In the gospel and by the gospel, the truth of our situation is revealed and we are rendered naked, yet this time, unlike in Genesis 3, we do not have any reason to hide because the one who reveals, the word that reveals, loves us. And this time our response is repentance and love rather than shame and hiding. I who speak to you am he. This word is for us. You are known, fully and intimately known. Any questions on that part? Well, it's just more of a thought, but I feel like when she says, Sir, I perceive you're, you're a prophet, I feel like it might be more like, whoa, 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 what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Like, I need to figure out what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And kind of a protective, like, why is he here at the well? Is mm-hmm. he here to catch me? Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing. Kind of like her own fig leaf. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah absolutely. And, and so she's being polite, but like wary and maybe like backing up. Kind yeah, of, you know? yeah, um, absolutely. I like that. And he's like, no, we'll go there. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and I know it and it's okay and I'm not, you know. That jives well with me. Not that you need my approval. It's excellent because later she goes out, right? And she goes into the town and says, come and meet a man who told me everything about myself. That shame, that protective thing that you just mentioned, drops. And now she's like, he just exposed me my whole entire life and I'm not ashamed of that. I'm going to come come meet a man who exposed my shame and... And I think that's like who you're friends with when you can be real and vulnerable and still they're there. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Very disarming. Yeah. yeah. And that's and it's it's so we see the creational motifs of the uh, the story that we just talked about and Genesis three, sort of being pulled further into this encounter. Again, it's God alone with a woman. And I think when the disciples show up, they're like, rah, 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 rah. That's how I don't have to quote scripture if I just like make angry like lower voiced motions. Um, but they do. They give them a hard time. Like, what are you doing? And so it's just they don't they don't get it. But she picks up on it and gets it. So it's just another. I love that kind of idea of like their God is alone with woman a number of times, um, almost highlighting the fact that we don't need a masculine. Um, apart from the second person of the Trinity, a male intermediary distributing to us God's word. We have plenty of biblical evidence that we have encounters with God on our own. All right. You guys want to talk about head coverings? (laughs) It's not head coverings. It's actually hair bound up on your head. I'm actually breaking so many rules. I have broken so many little nuancy typically used rules <clears throat> I wore pearls yesterday when I was preaching and my hair is down today <laughs> and um, so anyway that's how I rebel in subtle ways that no one notices <laughs> is that a rule that clerics have or is that no it's in scripture oh. uh, Paul does a big thing about like no braided hair yeah. and no I pearls, pearls. and yesterday it's okay. There was, no there, was a, it, there was a context for what he was talking about. Um, and then in this passage, uh, he says to bind up the hair to, as a symbol of authority. And so I'm just up here letting the full mane go. <laughs> it was bigger earlier, too, so you guys are lucky. Um, uh, do you want me to? I'll read it. Or do you guys know this by heart, right? <laughs> just kidding. I don't even know it by heart, and I wrote a paper on it. Um, okay, so 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 10, it's called head coverings, that's the subject heading, but just remember like in the original text there was never any like these little like nice section headings. So, 
But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the husband is the head of his wife, and God is the head of Christ. Any man who prays or prophesies with something on his head disgraces his head, but any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. It is one and the same thing as having her head shaved. For if a woman will not veil herself, then she should cut off her hair. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or to be shaved, she should wear a veil. For a man ought not to have his head veiled, since he is the image and reflection of God. But woman is the reflection of man. Indeed, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. For this reason, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I'm always like, that's not... It's not where I thought the argument was going. <laughs> right? It's sort of like, okay, <laughs> because of the angels. <laughs> um, so Paul begins his discourse. So I'm going to start with sort of providing different ways of looking at the term head. Kephale is the Greek word. Um, in this passage, if you want to sound like, I don't know, if you want to maybe end the conversation about this, just say mention the kephale structures and the other person will glaze over and probably cease talking with you because they'll be like I don't want to get into this but these are called kephale structures and the kephale is the Greek word for head and the structures are where Paul lists out um, Christ is the head of every man and that is actually the and andros um, and the husband is the head of his wife and God is the head of Christ those are the kephale structures um, so, and he begins his, his discussion on head coverings with this word, kephale, head, but he, did you notice, like, she should have a symbol on her head is not to disgrace her head, and he should have not a symbol on his head to disgrace his head, and then this is the head of this. You see how he's playing around with this word head and using it in such various ways that it's, um, it's being used in, a, in an ambiguous way, and so it makes the passage hard to kind of really translate and understands um, and it's so he's using it in a vague and ambiguous way so I'm going to go through and list two specific ways that is typically translated the word head and then um, I'm going to throw out just a kind of concept of a third way that I think works well with sort of the overlying theme of the passage so the first way is um, I'm going to go with the, the definition of source so think head of a river the source. Man is the source of woman. Um, so you take out head and you start putting source in. This is where it breaks down is man, the male, this is Christ the source of male. I guess maybe if you want to look at maleness and Jesus does have a body and he is a man and maybe he exemplifies what it means to be a man. But you have to kind of do a little bit of work. And then, you know, Christ, you know, God is the source of Christ. That could probably have some issues doctrinally when you get into maybe the Trinity um, but it works really well for the structure between wife and husband um, and so the one of the um, there's some issues with the source definition too because it doesn't work well with the overall theme so sometimes when you're doing biblical studies and you're gonna do some exegesis you want to keep in mind the theme of the coherent passage um, so here one of the major themes in this passage is honor and shame and glory so the question becomes, well, how does source function with that theme, with those themes? And it's a little bit rocky. Um, but it's still, a lot of people do still prefer using that because I think there's other passages in the New Testament where the kephale structures, again, glazing over, um, are present and source works well. Another aspect is the traditional aspect, one aspect that I'm sure you're familiar with, which is authority. Um, Authority, supremacy, and leadership. Um, Richard Hayes, uh, Wayne Grudem is someone who would probably represent this view. Uh, well, no, not probably, definitely. Um, Richard Hayes, uh, I actually enjoy reading Hayes on a number of topics, just not this one. Um, he writes, in view of the whole shape of the argument that patriarchal implications of verse 3 are undeniable, thus the concept of authority is to be retained. That's my micro-expression to that. Um, head is used in a sense of leader, and that sense is not absent here as Christ in his incarnation submitted to God. A man is subject to Christ, so the married woman is subject to her husband. That's another scholar 
I'll save his name from you guys. <laughs> um, culturally, the Corinthians would have understood Kephale to have the connotation of authority due to the empire's rhetoric of the pater familias, so the language of head as authority would not have been lost um, on the Corinthian hearers. Um, ancient literature applies Kephale often to authority or to the most honored or prominent part. Both authority and honored part um, do fit Paul's Christology as well as the normal structure of the household and Paul's environment. But again, let's come to the text with a question. How often do you know Paul to tout the party line? Does Paul often argue in favor of the empire? No, he's consistently using language, empire language, flipping it and simultaneously undoing the, the structures and the status quo of the day. If Kephale only means authority or the like in this passage, then we may be left with the Christ that has restored everything but the relationship between men and women. Is that, I mean, I think God's power is pretty big. I think the event of justification impacts us, not just in our relationship with God, but impacts us in our horizontal as well with relationships with each other. So another issue with translating Kephale as authority is there will be a tendency to view the Trinity in terms of subordinationism. If Paul is talking about hierarchy and authority within the Kephale structure of this verse, then God is authority over, meaning greater than, superordinated over, the incarnated Christ. And this results in a Christ that is inferior, subordinated to God. If Christ in his incarnation is not fully God and fully man, then we are left in our sins and without hope. The traditional understanding of Kephale as authority reduces Christ to a very small Christ. You do not want a very small Christ. You want a very big one. For had Paul meant to speak of rule and subjection, he would not have brought forward the instance of a woman or a man. This is Andrew Thistleton, Anthony Thistleton, I believe. And if you do a study on 1 Corinthians, it is an excellent commentary to go through. He's referring to Chrysostom an older theologian, um, speaking of the, he's challenging the imagery that Paul's using, that if he really wanted it to mean authority, wouldn't he have used, why would he have used the instance of a woman and a man or a wife and a husband, but why wouldn't he have used a slave and a master? That would really drive home the imagery of authority, right? So it is a wife or a woman as free as equal in honor, and the son also, though he did become obedient to the father, it was the son of God, he was God. He is God. He voluntarily submitted himself to the event of the cross, to the event of the incarnation. So subordinate, like to have a, a message of authority coming in with the word kephale, then you have Christ being forced. He has to obey his father. And that's not the case. He voluntarily does it. He is the, the servant who says, send me of Isaiah. The context of love between God and Christ or between man and woman is one um, of obedience in terms of response in being in choosing that, not in being imposed. So submission <clears throat> comes from a word that is translated as I submit. Uh, if you look at the Greek, it's actually a middle passive. And passive words are always things done to us, right? But the fun thing about Greek is, like English, we were talking about, I, I hate the word preached. I think it should be prot. Yeah. <laughs> right? Teach, taught, preach, preach, prot. So it doesn't mean, I also don't like showed. I feel like that's an awkward word. But um, this, in, in Greek, there are words when they hit the passive, they're called deponents, and they actually have an active translation rather than a passive one. So I chase is active. I am being chased is a passive. Um, the word, word, uh, word programs used to always highlight, you're using the passive voice. Um, that probably just made, dated me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're using the passive voice. Um, <clears throat> but this word, which comes from the word to subject, tasso, and even hupotasso, um, is a subjection concept. When that word, hupotasso, hits the passive, it becomes an active translation of I submit. And that's how you translate it. It's not 
I am being submitted. It is I submit. And so you have this voluntary self-oblation aspect of the word that we translate as submit and submission. It's voluntary. It's willing. It's done in love. It's because you love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's where that submission comes from. That's why Paul uses it in, in Ephesians 5 mutually. Therefore, submitting one to another jumps down wives to your own husbands. Now, that's a fun discussion. I won't get into it now, but I have a whole bunch of theories about Ephesians 5 and why he does that. But it's a voluntary thing. That reflects more the activity of God in Christ in the Trinity than anything else. It is voluntary what he does. And the Spirit itself is sent and enters us, and it's voluntary. It's willing. It is that God so loved the world that that love can't be held in, that it goes forth. Maternal love is the closest thing that I can get to it on this planet. That unconditional, I will lay down my life for my child because I can't do anything else kind of love. That's what God's doing in himself towards us. And so we reflect that in our mutual submission of one to another. One must not confuse submission and subjection. Christ's submission was an oblation, was an offering of himself to God in order to glorify God by atoning for the sins of humanity, thus restoring humanity to God. There's also another aspect, and I've always advocated for this reading, and I'm a little bit less inclined to do so now because sometimes when you keep reading about certain concepts, they start informing other things that you've already written on, and then you start disagreeing with the things you've written on. But I do like the idea of looking at the word kephale and the kephale structures and understanding the uh, synecdoche. The, um, uh, the, the head of state is the head of state, not out of authority, but because he is um, by whom the state is known kind of concept. Uh, foremost, like the first of creation is... Adam is the man, and then she's created second, and so you know that she's different because you have this other person first, and so there's this first part, not necessarily better, more superior, or having authority, but just the first part. Um, and I think it works well, some aspects of it work well with the glory and shame and honor concepts of the passage, um, and I think it, I don't know, I'd have to go back and probably rewrite a whole other paper examining it, and uh, it's not going to happen anytime soon. But it's another aspect to the word that could function there um, strongly. So verses 4 through 6, um, let me just look at this real quick. I don't want to go on. Okay, so Paul is using kephale in two different ways. He actually has a literal sense of head. Remember, we were doing that, uh, wear something on our head, not to shame our head that he's using literal sense um, and then he's using um, head as in the part that is glorified and is Paul referring to long hair or veil and the word that's used to transla translate it as veil is um, it actually means hair down the back of the head so I'm going to go with hair bound that's, but that's fine um, if you want to say veils go for it but um, it's probably just hair down the back of the head is bad you should have hair up the head um, so, and this was um, in direct relationship to the, the uh, pagan worship that was going on and the female prophetesses of these pagan temples that uh, would prophesy with their hair down. And because I didn't do it for the first group, I'm not going to do it for you, but I can get a good swinging of the hair going on. But they would do this kind of really fantastic motion with their hair and their hair would be going everywhere. And so Dang. Paul... Yeah, head banging. <laughs> yeah, I guess that would be the modern day equivalent. <laughs> um, so there's a, um, I, I feel that oftentimes where Paul puts the brakes um, and seems to be implementing rules against women, what he's doing is contextually and culturally for his time, he's sort of stopping something to allow the gospel proclamation to go forward and it is the gospel that is fluid that enters in um, into communities that cro crosses boundaries culturally that impacts our hearts individually um, and for Paul for anything to stop that he's going to put a halt on so um, 
I could bring up examples. I don't want to go too long. Galatians is a good example where he sort of stops the super apostles. He does it to men too. He's like, nope. To be a Christian does not mean now that we have to come over and now start doing all the things that the Israelites were doing. That's the law, and that can't penetrate through boundaries. That's going to absorb and you know uh, accumulate into um, a very unified, um, singular understanding rather than being a plural expression of what the gospel can do when it actually can motivate. So he, he puts a stopgap on the law and the super apostles from doing... You know, and so he does it too with you know, I I, I don't um, I don't allow a woman to teach and have authority or domination actually over a man, and that's because in Ephesus the women were reversing the roles and now dominating the men, and he's like, well, this isn't gonna make the gospel. That's not gospel freedom. So there's so he he will consistently always put stopgaps, and that's what I think he's doing um, here with um, with his loose hair. Don't have the loose hair. Um, and then it also works well with the honor and shame that's going on in the passage. Um, and, yes, please. What does it mean to shame your head or, or to dishonor your head? What is that? That's what we're going to get to. Okay. Yeah. Um, so he says what's interesting here, and at first um, I've always kind of wrestled with this quote, but now I'm starting to really jive with it. Uh, do you, um, Thistleton, uh, again, um, Paul intends to enact a rhetorical shock when he's talking in this way. Do you really want to shame yourself, your family, and your God in such a way? Or alternatively, are you really serious about no longer wanting to be honored as a woman? Or do you generally want to use gospel freedom to eradicate all that relates to gender distinctiveness? Now that's always bothered me a little bit, but when I stopped, stepped back and I looked at that one phrase, are you serious about no longer wanting to be honored as a woman? I thought, oh, he wants us to be fully woman up there. Fully woman in our authority as women. Not pretending to be this or that, but as women. And that's powerful and rather progressive, I think. So in verses 7 through 10, and this will tease out more the... Um, shaming of the head. So Paul furthers his argument about honor and shame within the genders based off of a brief explanation of Genesis 2, 18 through 23, which is why we grouped all the passages the way we did. It's full circle. Um, that a wife, because of the angels, should have a symbol of authority on her head. Um, Paul initiates the discussion about hair by referring to man as the image and glory of God. Therefore, he should not cover his head. Paul continues in verse 7b that woman is the glory of man and explains in verses 8 through 9 why she is the glory of man. There is, significantly, there is a significantly troubling aspect to these verses. Is Paul touting the hierarchical patriarchal line by saying that since the woman does not reflect the image of God as man does and was created from her and for him she is inferior? That could be the concern. Um, do you know F.F. F. Bruce? It's a good one. Um, highlights the unparalleled structure between the two parts of verse 7. Paul does not deny that woman also bears the image of God. Indeed, he implies that she does by carefully avoiding complete par parallelism. Anthony Thistleton, if we give due care to the nuances and force of image and glory in the biblical writings, it becomes clear that the emphasis falls less on hierarchy than on relation. That brings us back to Genesis 2. It's about relation and community more than it is about hierarchy and authority. The conclusion of Paul's argument in 7 to 10 is an awkward statement. Because of the angels, she had a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Um, and this word authority, this is what's interesting. Paul uses the word authority. He uses his word for authority, and it means authority. So why would he ambiguously and vaguely use head as a means for authority when just a couple of lines down, he's going to go ahead and say authority. This is why a wife ought to have, ought to, must. It's, um, it's hold on, it's an obligation. One must, one ought. She ought to represent her authority because of the angels. He says authority, not ambiguously. He says it clearly. 
So why wouldn't he say it clearly before? If he really wanted head to be authority, I don't feel like Paul's reticent to use the word authority. So the question remains, what does head mean? Not authority. That's my argument. So he specifically uses authority to express a specific point. Um, He's subverting the common understanding of women and authority in light of the culture we would expect Paul to say the opposite. You should not be in authority. If he's actually pulling that pater familias line through, you would expect him to say the opposite. But rather, the head covering is a sign of her authority. It is not a sign of her submission to the husband's authority. It is a sign of her very own authority that she has and should express and should operate in, actually. The expression to have authority in Greek always means, just as it does in English, to exercise authority, not to submit to it. That's Hayes. Now, Hayes also argues for traditional understanding of kephale, so that's a little bit of a corner to be painted into. <laughs> um, let me just... So the woman is to take charge of her physical head. Paul is transforming the symbolic connotations of the head covering. The bound hair becomes a fitting symbol of the self-control and orderliness that Paul desires for the community as a whole. Okay, now about the angels. Among the Jewish traditions which find their way into the New Testament, those in which angels are perceived as guardians of order, as well as participants in the church's praise to God, prove the best clue to Paul's meaning. This element is noted in the Qumran writings. In Galatians 3.19, Paul observes that the law was put into operation through angels by a mediator. The entire discussion is about the power of the spirit that has been poured out on men and women alike. Acts 2, Acts 1. Paul is working to maintain order to be sure that the proclamation of the gospel doesn't get lost within a radical embrace of the surge of freedom. It is not that women should always have their heads covered or bind their hair for church, in church, or in a position of speaking to the church. It's that in the moment Paul's writing, this binding up or covering assists the proclamation of the gospel. But let's keep in mind, Paul is acknowledging women are prophesying. And no, this isn't merely praying. Oftentimes people will take this word and say, well, it's just praying. Women can pray for the congregation. Prophesying Historically, in the Old Testament, it's not just like the Old Testament prayers. It's the Old Testament prophets, major and minor, and they're prophesying about the day of the Lord that is going to come. So prophesying in the New Testament becomes what? A proclamation of the day of the Lord that has come and will come again. So when we are up in front of a congregation, we are not just praying. We are proclaiming Christ crucified. We are proclaiming the word of the God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we have every right and all authority to do so as women. God's love is active and it penetrates our hearts and minds. It opens eyes and ears. It moves us and it quiets us. And we've been encountered by God's love in manifold ways by the power of the Holy Spirit. But mostly, his love causes us to proclaim his son, Christ crucified, and this by the power of the Holy Spirit, God in us as women. You are loved. You are, as you are, as a woman, fearfully and wonderfully made, seen, known, and loved. Any questions? <laughs> How'd you get there? <laughs> Anyone? Right. Thank you, Lorian, for bringing to us the word from Scripture. Thank you. <laughs> Let's pray for Lauren and for ourselves as we go out from here. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way you have so fearfully and wonderfully made us. Um, we are awesome in your sight, Lord. We thank you for that, that, um, that you created us um, so uniquely um, as women and so then uniquely each as individuals, um, and that you um, call us good even before we fall into sin, that there is something beautiful about that in us. And then on the other side, Lord, of our sin and our shame, we thank you, Lord, that you see and know everything about us, just like Jesus knew the woman at the well, and yet you do not condemn us. And so we thank you for that as well. 
And we thank you, Lord, for the power of the Holy Spirit, that we too have access to you through the Holy Spirit poured out upon men and women both. And so we ask, Lord, um, we thank you, Lord, for your servant, Lauren, the prophet that she is, the proclaimer of your good news and your word. We ask, Lord, that um, you would continue to bless her in this ministry, even as she continues in new ways and in the same um, ways that she's been working in the past to proclaim your good news to those who need to hear it. And we ask for us as well, Lord, even as we are women in you, women who know you, who've been loved by you, we ask, Lord, that you would open our mouths to proclaim your praise um, to others who haven't yet heard. Would you make us even um, prophets in your Holy Spirit? Would you open our lips that we would proclaim your praise and others would see you and know you and come to faith in you? And so, Lord, even as we go out from here, we ask for your blessing to be upon us, that any shame or condemnation would be cast out in Jesus' name, and that you would um, stand us back up on our feet in you um, with joy and thanksgiving. In your name we ask. Amen. Amen.